Hi, welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast, the podcast for coaches, coach developers, and athletes. I'm your host, Sam Callen. Thanks for finding the podcast. If you've not done so, please subscribe at iTunes and leave a rating for me. I'd really appreciate it. Or from my website. The website address is smartercoachingllc.com and my email address is smartercoachingllc at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at smartercoaching. Please, if you've got any tips for the podcast or guests you think I should have on, please drop me a note. I'd really appreciate it. Now, turn you over to today's exciting episode and uh, thanks for listening. Hey, joining me this week on the podcast is Dr. Kim Fazeski from Appalachian State University in lovely Boone, North Carolina. And I say lovely, uh, I spent two wonderful years there in graduate school at Appalachian State and really enjoyed it. It's in the beautiful mountains of Western North Carolina. And it's just a fantastic place to be, particularly if you like outdoorsy stuff like rock climbing, canoeing, mountain bike riding, riding as long as you are okay with hills because there's no, nothing flat there at all. But I didn't get Dr. Vazeski on to talk about how great Appalachian State and Boone, North Carolina are. I got on to talk about goal setting. And in this podcast, uh, we introduced the concept of SMART goals. And Dr. Vazeski even talks about SMARTER goals. And SMART goals are goals that are specific, measurable. You have action. They're realistic, timely. You evaluate them and you revise them as necessary. So SMARTER. We also talk about uh, what people can do to be better at goal setting and also how she uses the metaphor of a staircase to illustrate a goal setting for her clients and the folks that she works with. We discuss three types of goals. Outcome goals, which are typically seen as more competitive goals, winning a race, beating your arch rival, whatever that may be. Uh, so where you don't have complete control of the outcome because there's someone else you're competing against. We talk about performance goals, which are typically standard-based or based on prior performance. So if you're, you know, a weightlifter and you want to increase your, you know, one rep max in something, that's a performance goal. Nobody is really going to stop you from doing that and um, how you can go about setting performance goals for yourself. And then lastly, are process goals, which may be the one that people tend to forget about. These are the day-to-day things that you're going to do to achieve either that performance goal or the outcome goal. Things such as, I'm showing up for practice every day. I'm getting plenty of sleep. Um, if it's something non-exercise related, maybe there's uh, materials you have to read or things you have to do to prepare for that. And so those will all be process goals, the, thing, the steps you're going to take to achieve the performance or outcome goal. So with that, uh, here's my interview with Dr. Kim Fazeski from Appalachian State University. Hey, I'm here online with uh, Kim Vazeski, Dr. Kim Vazeski from Appalachian State University. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good, good to be here. Yeah. Hey, um, Kim, today's topic we're going to primarily talk about is goal setting. But before we jump into that, um, tell folks a little bit about your background, athletic-wise, as well as academic. Okay. Well, I will start with the... Um, short version of my life, I think, is really kind of the best way to give a picture of both of those things and how they're really very related. Um, I did my undergrad in political science and law studies in Wisconsin, where I'm from, 
And when I graduated, I had just kind of started riding and racing mountain bikes at that point. And I graduated, went and worked for an attorney. I was going to go to law school. I had this big plan. And I got into the attorney's office and I hated it. I was like, well, I guess maybe I should reevaluate the life plan. And at that point, as I said, I was racing mountain bikes. It was really the only other thing I was good at. So I decided, uh, what the heck, let's throw everything into this whole bike racing thing and see where I can go with it. And so for the next, I guess it was about 12 years, I worked at bike shops. I raced bikes as a pro, both mountain and road. And then later on, I threw some cyclocross in there as well. Um, primarily, my, my first love has always been mountain bike racing, but um, had a lot of fun racing with some road teams for a while as well. And over the course of doing all of that, I started, as you, as you get good at a sport, people start asking you, well, how do I do that? And uh, so I ended up coaching and getting into coaching and working with working with athletes uh, along the way I went through the USA Cycling uh, coaching education program and um, spent a lot of time coaching athletes and I still actually work with a few athletes on a coaching basis as well a lot of what I'm doing with athletes now is more on the mental skills side of things but I do um, do still work with a few athletes I've got um women mostly that I'm working with that I just uh, can't give it up completely because I, I love that part of what I do. And so as I got to a point where I'd been racing bikes for a long time, which was really fun, but not a great way to make a living, especially as a woman, uh, figured that I couldn't race bikes forever and was trying to figure out what my next career was going to be. And was talking to a dear friend of mine who was a psychology professor at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga where I was living and he looked at me and he said you're so good at working with people you love sport why do you not why, why don't you do sports psychology and I'm sure the look on my face was just I, I was dumbfounded I never knew that there was such a thing as sports psychology at that point in my life I, he he totally rocked my world with that one question and so I started investigating what it would take for me to study sports psychology and go into that field and went and did my master's degree in Chattanooga at the University of Tennessee there. Uh, studied sports psychology is actually a psychology master's with a focus on sports psych. And somewhere along the way, I fell in love with the teaching and the research aspect of being at a university and decided that I was going to pursue my doctorate. And from there, went to the uh, University of North Carolina at Greensboro and did, a, did my PhD in sports psychology. And um, from there, I've spent most of my time since then, uh, hasn't been that long since I finished, but since most of my time since then, um, doing research and teaching. And as I said, I still work with a few athletes. And um, my husband is a full-time cycling coach. And when I was coaching, uh, we, were, we were both coaching full-time and I was racing. And so... I'm still, um, I still work with him occasionally um, with some of his athletes on mental skills training as well. And uh, this past August, I started here at Appalachian State University, and I love it here in the mountains of North Carolina. Very excited to be here, and 
I am in the exercise science department, and they have not had anyone to this point who has done any of the behavioral aspects of physical activity in the department. So part of what I am doing in my job here is to get um, get that part of our program kind of up and running. So I'm in the process of developing some sports psychology courses for our curriculum. And I have just started uh, the Human Behavior and Physical Activity Laboratory here, where we are working at, um, working on a number of different projects, getting a number of different projects going. And I've got about 12 students right now who are working in my research lab with me. So that is the really short version of my life. I know it didn't sound very short, but it is. That's all right. Um, a few things you know. You left out a few things. I may have. You, you, you are a you you are a I believe several time national cyclocross champion. Just once. I have I have a just number once. of models. Just I just just once on the top step. I've been on the other steps a number of times as well. But yes, oh. I'm a national champion in cyclocross, and. Um, and uh, it's got a silver from Masters Worlds in cyclocross as well. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I did all right. Yeah, yeah, I would say so, academically as well. Um, so for folks who just to – I always like to give a little background. Um, I think – I was trying to figure out when you and I first met, and I, I want to say it was like in 2000 in Phoenix. Was that where we first crossed paths? I don't that- think – I think it was a little – I don't think it was Phoenix. I think it was after that. Okay, I think I met Mark, your husband, in Phoenix. Yeah, I think you, you met you know, him. A, a, yeah, a trip that you know because of that, I will always have little tremors about. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and and for the other folks, I it, it's hard not to sit here and make fun of your husband. I've known him like said since two thousand. He was on my advisory panel at USA Cycling, so he contributed a lot to the coaching education program there. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say anything else nice about him because he might actually listen to this and I don't <laughs> want to have to deal with that. So, all right, well, let's move away from that guy. Um, and um, the one of the things I wanted to bring you on was talking about goal setting. And one of the things yeah. you and I and some email exchanges had talked about was people are really not very good at goal setting. So um, let's start out with talking about what a goal is and why is goal setting important? Well, it's not that we're not good at goal setting. We're great at goal setting. We're horrible at setting the right kind of goals. Um, Very good. We tend to be really good at setting those big, um, very vague goals. Uh, You know, I'll have athletes come to me and they, you know, I want to win this race or I want to, I want to be the best at whatever. And, you know, we put these great big goals out there. But we're very bad at actually breaking it down and figuring out how we can get to those goals uh, along the way. Because that's great if, um, you know, for instance, if I look back at my career, the, the goal that I set for myself when I was racing bikes, when I first decided that I was going to go all in, was I want to race pro. And at that time... I was a non-competitive, we were calling it expert, Cat 1. I mean, I had just upgraded to Cat 1. I was non-competitive. If that was my only goal along the way, I had a long ways to go. <laughs> and, and that's how we tend to set goals. We tend to look at those really big, 
outcome goals. And we don't look at all of the things that we need to do along the way to get there and how those things along the way are actually goals in themselves that we need to be proud of accomplishing. And that's, um, that's why goal setting is, is so important to do effectively because I have seen so many athletes who have so much potential and really love their sport set those big outcome goals and not look at all of the other things along the way and they get discouraged and they get burned out and they get frustrated and they end up leaving the sport not because they weren't good and they weren't making progress, but because all they had was that one big outcome goal and they had nothing along the way to show them that they were accomplishing things. Um, as, as, as I look at goal setting, um, and, and I've seen various terminology on this and everybody, you know, there may be different terminology, but I think the idea is the same no matter kind of what you call them, is three, sort of three types of goals. I think you touched on it. Maybe, maybe two of them, depending yeah. on how you want to define them. One is outcome goals you talked about that I want to win a race. And I, I have a, you know, just a horrific outcome goal story that I may or may not share. Um, <laughs> another one is performance goals and then process goals. Yeah. Um, maybe walk us through your thoughts on each of those and we'll start with the outcome goals. Yeah, um, I think it, there's basically, um, you know, in my theory to goal approaching, there's there's three types of goals. Um, we have our outcome-based goals, which I've talked about already, and you also just, just spoke about. We really focus on results. They tend to be uh, more of those long-term, big, out-there goals, and it's, you know, I want to win. I want to I wanna do this, that, that type of goal. Um, we also, the other types of goals that we really need that are important are, as you said, performance goals, which are really, you, you focus more on a standard of performance. So you may end up with that outcome goal along the way. So when we're talking about cycling, for instance, uh, a mountain biker for a performance goal, maybe their performance goal is, you know, I want to be able to, um, I want to be able to, to hold this particular power um, or this average power for, for the duration of this race. This is my performance goal because if I can do that, then I know that I have trained and my body has performed in the way that, um, that I've trained for. Um, and then the third type of goal we have are process goals where we're actually focusing on um, like the execution of skills. So for instance, that same mountain biker, we may take them and they want to say, you know what, my process goals for this particular race or for this particular point in my season is I want to be able to ride this section of this trail without having to get off, or without having to put a foot down. Um, so I'm really, they're really focusing on, on the skills associated with that. So even if they go into a race and that outcome is not necessarily what they want, they've held a, a level of performance that maybe they have not done previously so they can be really proud of the fact that they're training hard, that training is working and look, my body just did something that I had not been able to do before and then those process goals where um, I just cleared a section of trail that I've never been able to clear before because I've been working really hard on my skills and my bike handling and so I can be really proud because I just accomplished that as well so even though they come away from a race where the outcome was, okay, maybe I finished mid-pack and it wasn't a particularly spectacular outcome as far as looking at the numbers and where somebody stacks up against um, the rest of the competition in the field that day, they can walk away and they can say, 
but performance-wise and process-wise, look at what I accomplished today. Today was a huge success, and those successes down the road are going to help me towards accomplishing the outcome, the bigger outcome goals that I have set. Yeah, when when I work with athletes and even myself, I, I look at as process goal. I think about kind of as a pyramid, and I really don't like the pyramid model for mm-hmm. much many things, but well, the process goals are at the very bottom, performance goals come in the middle, outcome goal at the top. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, I, I work somewhat in the health fitness industry where outcome goals aren't really there. Got people who want to lose weight or, um, you know, they want to do something, but it's it's not a competitive situation. Yeah. And one of the things to talk about with people is that, you know, process goals, those bottom ones, you have a huge amount of control over where you whether you succeed at those or not. The performance goals, you still have a very large, you know, control over whether you'll, you know, achieve those or not. The outcome goals, though, have an element that are completely out of your control. Like, who shows up that day? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so the story that I alluded to is um, many years ago, I ran a little local 5K in this little small town, and I came in third. I hadn't particularly trained for it, and the two people who finished in front of me didn't finish that far in front. And I really liked the the race, and so I said, next year I'm going to come back. I'm going to win this dang thing. <laughs> and Because um, it was well within my capabilities to run as you know faster than I did and faster than the guy who won it. And so I, I knew the guy who came in second place. We ended up finding out that we had, we had kind of run in the same circles, literally had run in the same circles at one point in time. And um, so, you know, contacted him. He's... Towards the race, found out he wasn't going to be there. I'm going, cool. I only got one person to beat now. And then found out through the grapevine that the other guy wasn't going to be there either. So I thought, cool. Um, so I knew somebody on the race committee and, you know, I, hey, you know, anybody else you know of at the race that looks like they could beat me? And she's like, no. She said, you're, you're by far the fastest person that we have listed here. All right, cool. Show up that morning, warming up, feeling really cocky. And, uh, a white van pulls up, and but this this sounds really horrible when I say this, but um, five Mexicans jump out of the van, and they're wearing um, Mexican, their National Olympic Committee team kit. <laughs> now I should back up. This was 1996, and this was in Georgia. It was right before the Olympics. Um, yeah, for some reason, these guys had decided to come to this little 5K and to use it as part of their workout. <laughs> Yeah, I immediately went going for fifth place because one yeah. of them was the coach. Actually, fourth because one of the guys ended up not running the race for some reason. The other three did. The gun went off, and I don't think I ever saw them again. So, <laughs> um, you know, my outcome goal was shot, but and, and it devastated me, to be quite yeah. honest. But I look back on it afterwards. My, you know, a couple of people talked me off the ledge kind of thing, and um, as, you know, good coaches will do. And – he said, but what was your time? I looked and said, yeah, I, I ran 45 seconds faster than I did the year before, which would have won the race the year before probably. Yeah. And uh, stuff, it's like, okay, I got I got to latch on to that part of it that my performance was better. I can't control that, you know, these guys who were all, you know, I mean, we're talking guys who ran low 14s, maybe upper 13s minutes for a 5K where, you know, had decided to show up to this little p- – rinky dinky 5k that had no prize money even so um i learned a lot about outcome goals on that day yeah 
All right, enough of that embarrassing story of my life. Um, I think we've all got one of those stories. Anybody who does anything competitive has one of those stories, and that's um, you know those are that's the exact reason that um, that. I tell my athletes that you don't want to just set outcome goals. Outcome goals are fine, but you've got to have those other goals in there as well. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, steps in goal setting. How do you, how do you approach that? Um, my approach is to really kind of think about it like a staircase and start out with, you know, what, what is that long-term goal or those long-term goals, which again are probably going to be outcome-based goals but we need to know what that is because from there you kind of build a staircase where you think about, okay, here is my long-term outcome-based goal. You know, it's that ultimate aspiration, the big picture, you know, where you want to go, you know where your starting point is, you know where you want to go. Now, how do we build a staircase between there of goals so we can get there? So, we start and I kind of I kind of work backwards and forwards at the same time, which um, I know that if you were here right now I'd be drawing pictures on my whiteboard. But since you're not, you're just gonna have to bear with me. And you can still that. draw pictures, we I, just can't see yeah, them. You just can't see them. But you know, I start with that with when I'm helping someone set a goal or when I'm setting a goal for myself. Okay, what is that that big picture? And then let's look at okay, where are we now? And then make a list of the things that need to that need to be accomplished from where we are now until where we're going. Um, you know, do, do we need to, um, you know, increase, increase our aerobic capacity? Do we need to increase skills? You know, what are all of those little things along the way that need to change in order to get to that long-term goal? And all of those little things along the way become stair steps from where we are until, how, until we get to where we want to be. And, um, and in that way, those things along the way typically are the performance and, and process-based goals uh, where we're, we're working on skills, we're working on levels of performance, where you know, maybe we have to build two or three skills on top of each other before we get to the skill level that we really want to be at for, uh, in order to accomplish that long-term goal. But you, you really, you lay it out like a, like a staircase, and it starts with that long-term goal and then a whole list of things that have to happen in between there, and then kind of like a puzzle, you fit it all together and figure out, okay, where, where do these fit? How do they fit together? And then from there, it's really about, okay, now how long is it going to take before we can master these skills? Okay, we think that's realistic that we can do this in about a month if we work on it, you know, two days a week. And, and we really start to build a program around how we incorporate all of those smaller things, those performance and those process goals, into that long-term goal. And then in that way, the individual is looking at it, and along the way, they're checking off boxes. They're checking off things that they've accomplished so we're getting that, um, that gratification for, from accomplishing goals along the way. We're working on those process and performance goals. And then by the time we get to where that long-term goal is, yes, it may be an outcome goal, but look at all the things that have been accomplished along the way. Um, one of the words that you used in there was, you know, realistic. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's always a struggle with me because you get a client who comes to you and and this can be in the, the fitness industry. It can be a weight loss client. Mm -hmm. It can be someone who wants to 
you know, my world is trained for a marathon and, and really for most of my clients, and, and actually I shouldn't even say most of them, only a few really have had this aspiration is, you know, they want to qualify for the Boston Marathon because for a marathon runner, that's kind of the, that's, that's the pinnacle that you're likely to reach is qualifying and running Boston. And, um, you know, when somebody comes to me that I've not, you know, had an interaction with before and they'll, you know, say, I want to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And one of the things to struggle with is, okay, how do I know if that's realistic or not? So maybe your thoughts on just working with that athlete on how do you determine what is a realistic or attainable goal? It it becomes a challenge. And, uh, you know, if you're meeting an athlete for the first time and you don't know that athlete, um, it's um, sometimes you have to walk them through the process of figuring out if it's realistic. I think about realistic goals and um, very often when I talk about goal setting and I talk about SMART goals, which is setting specific, measurable, um, action-oriented, realistic, time-based goals. Um, The realistic one is the one that we tend to get hung up on, especially if it's someone who has a picture in their head of what they used to be able to do. And even though life has gotten in the way, somehow they, they, they still see themselves in a certain manner. And I tell this story about oh, you're speaking a, to me on that one. A, a dear friend of mine um, who was in his younger days, he was an Ironman triathlete. Uh, never fabulous at it, but could, could crank out, you know, an Ironman at one point, I think he did two in one year. Um, But at that point, he was single. All he did was work and train, (laughs) you know. Ah, yes. And he had lots and lots of time to train. Now, fast forward about 15 years. He was 50 pounds heavier than he was. He hadn't run or been on a bike or been in the pool in probably at least a year, um, more than that before it, since it had been consistently. And he'd been married for 10 years and was now working a job that was very, very demanding. You know, 50 to 60 hours a week was, was the norm. And he comes to me and he says, so I just signed up for another Ironman. <laughs> I need you to help me get in shape. And I said, okay, so when is this event? It's in eight months. Ah, no problem. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So he he thought he thought that he thought that T and smart the timely meant like it should be timely like really soon, didn't he? Right. Yeah. So so we walked through um, the process, and I said, okay, if you know. Just because, and his words to me were, well, I've done it before, so I know I can do it. And I looked at him and I said, I have no doubt that you can eventually get in shape to do an Ironman again. However, with your schedule, the way that it is, and your current level of fitness, I don't know that it's realistic to be able to do it in that time frame. And he insisted that he was going to be able to do it. We put together a, um, a very aggressive training program, which did not work with his schedule nor with his personal life. And within two months, he had given up training and, was, and decided not to do it. He went through this process about three times where he signed up for an Ironman. I kept telling him, you need wow. to sign up for shorter races. We'll do some shorter yeah. races. We'll work back up to it. And then finally... 
about, I guess it's been about two years ago now. Um, well, it was about three years, three and a half years ago that he started the process, but finally about two years ago, I'm happy to say that he got his head around the fact that he needed to be more realistic and take a much longer approach to getting ready to do an Ironman, and he finished Ironman Chattanooga. So, but he needed to figure out how to be realistic about his training before he could get there. And I always tell people that story because people, everybody always laughs when, when I, when I tell it, because it was just so absurdly unrealistic when he came to me with what this long-term goal was that even when we, you know, made the list and looked at what he was going to have to do to get there, it just, it wasn't going to happen with the way that his schedule was and the way that his life currently was. So, a lot of times in working with someone when I'm trying to get them to see that we need to focus on the realistic, making that list and laying out everything that's going to have to happen between where you are and where you're going is kind of that reality check into what is realistic about it. Um, and and I've, I've found with athletes that that tends to kind of most of the time, and, and there's, there are times occasionally you're getting an athlete who's just not going to be realistic about it. Working with this individual, it took two or three tries before we finally got to the realistic part. Um, but I've found that if you really lay it out and, and you make that list of everything that's got to happen before you get to that goal, the... Uh, the realistic aspect kind of starts to think sink in when they start to look at it and go, wow, look at all these other things along the way that I'm going to have to do. I don't have enough time to do those. Or those are beyond the, the, the scope of, of what I'm, I, I may be capable of, so maybe I need to readjust that long-term goal. Um, but that's, that's kind of the technique that I've found is when you start to look at all the performance and process goals along the way in the middle of of getting to that long-term goal, it helps to bring the, um, the, the realism back into things. Well, yeah. The, the term I use a lot of times is it's realistic, but not realistic for now. Exactly. Sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and that's, that's the yeah. time aspect of it. It's like, okay, let's look at, um, you know, realistically, if you want to accomplish this, you know, let's, you, you can either accomplish this or you can try to accomplish this in this shorter time period that you've given that's not realistic. So, you know, maybe if we say instead of doing it, for instance, you said qualifying for Boston, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to qualify for Boston, I'm going to do it this year, maybe that's the five-year plan, for right. instance. Exactly. And, and, and we, need to, we need to expand that so there's enough time for all those performance and process goals along the way. And so that unrealistic goal then becomes realistic. Yeah. Well, you know, I, as I, I follow SMART as well. And just <laughs> recap is, you know, specific, measurable. I really like the term action. I think when uh -huh. I first learned that, the word the word I saw in there was attainable, but I really like the action rather than yeah, attainable. I do too. And then realistic, because I never could figure out what's the difference between realistic and attainable. Yeah. Um, I had, and I had trouble explaining that to my students. So I like the action part now because I can eliminate that part. And timely. I also think that R maybe it just popped in my head as you were discussing this is realization. Yeah. You know, the realization that what it takes to do that, what it takes to train for an Iron Man and the time commitment. And I think you also bring up something at some point in time that the client, the athlete, um, has to 
has to come to that understanding themselves. You can yeah. tell them and tell them and tell them, but at some point in time, they've got to say, oh, yeah, I see that now. And, uh, you know, my background a little bit in counseling as well, and that's one of the things I remember was harped on. It's amazing how much I use my counseling knowledge and working with clients, maybe I think sometimes more than my exercise physiology knowledge, and that they have to come to that realization and they've got to own it. And most of the time they end up thinking that they came up with the idea or whatever, but, um, <laughs> you know, but that's okay. That's, that's, that's the right. best way to do it. That's, um, you know, I, that's why when we sit, you know, when I sit down with clients, they're the ones that are making the list of everything that has to happen along the way, because then it's their ideas. It's their yep. thoughts and they take ownership of it. Yep. And the accountability for it too, mm-hmm. even though that's, Partly what I convince people to hire me for is, as a run coach is as much accountability as anything else yeah. uh, with that. Um, what you, in, in talking about the, your Ironman friend there, um, a couple of things came to mind here that um, talking about the barriers to setting goals. And I, I think it sounds like part of your process in doing that is looking at those barriers yeah. and maybe what's your approach on working with a client to or an athlete to get around over through however you want to look at the barriers that may pop up and how to well, identify those. Really when, um, when I talk about goal setting and I teach goal setting, you know, we've talked about the smart goals, but I actually really like smarter goals and Ooh. the ER stands for evaluate and revise. And that's, oh, I love it. Isn't that great? And, and that's where dealing with the barriers comes in because we stop on a regular basis and we evaluate and we, we revise all of those goals along the way. So whether that's on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, you know, depending on what the goals are, we stop and we look and we say, okay, how are we doing on these? Are we, are we getting to where we're going? Are we finding barriers that are coming up along the way? Did work get crazy? Did you get sick? Did, you know, whatever those things are. Okay, so let's evaluate where are we at versus where we wanted to be. Okay, how can we revise to still accomplish what we want to accomplish? Or are we at a place where we've found so many barriers that we maybe need to revise whatever that long-term goal is so that we can, we can continue to move forward? Um, so, so, yes, turning our SMART goals into SMARTER goals is really, to me, the key part of dealing with barriers. Coaching elite athletes is easy. Coaching right. kids and adults and, you know, people who have all the other things going on in their life, they're the ones that are challenging to deal with because of all the barriers that come up with their goals along the way. So, um, so making your goals smarter is, it has been my solution in dealing with that. You know, I, and, and I look back on my own, own career, <laughs> And career, yeah, that's a joke. Uh, <clears throat> I'm a hobby runner, um, but you know, I look back on it, and, and exactly the things you were talking about is, yeah, when I was in my 20s, I, I trained for triathlons. I did two years worth of triathlons, and it was great. I was single. I actually worked on a college campus where I had a meal plan. I didn't even have to prepare meals. I mean, I did some, but eh, that's an that was you know a big chunk of my day right there taken out of it the best life you could ever have uh, if you wanted to train for endurance events. And uh, and then, you know, married, kids, the whole, that whole thing. 
starts to throw in. And I think that's where we as a coach come in handy. I think that's why a lot of times people seek coaches out is, look, I got I got 10 hours a week or six hours a week to train. Make me the best that you can make me. And, you know, that's, I think, a lot of where our work comes in is yeah. dealing with the limitations that, you know, athletes have. And I think that's where a coach can be, you know, well worth the money. Uh, oh, definitely. Spend. I, I think a lot of a lot of what my job is with the athletes that I work with is definitely just okay. How do I help you optimize your time so you can accomplish those goals and you know make sure that you're not all over the place and trying to deal with all these other things as well. I mean, it's you know that's that's as much of our job as the actual design of the training program is the the navigation of of incorporating it into life. Yeah. And one of the aspects of this, and you kind of mentioned this with your, your, your Ironman friend there, it's actually a great grist for the mill here. Um, yeah, he is. <laughs> is that, is looking at that spousal, and I call it the support system around that person. You yes. know, who are the people that are supporting you in this? And also, are, are they on board with this thing that you're going to do? I mean, you know, I, I looked to train for an Ironman at one point in time after kind of later after I'd gone through my first triathlon life and I was thinking about starting another one. Um, and I, I started looking at it and I'm kind of one of those people I really like to train. So I, I'm a great candidate for overtraining. Uh-huh. And, um, I, and I, I looked I, at it and said, well, this. Yes, I, I, I have some of that in me as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and at, when I was young, I really could train at a high capacity and not get injured yeah. and not get burned out on it. So I had, you know, I had I, luck of the draw from genetics, biomechanical things, you know, sort of situation. But and and so I said, well, I'm going to do an Ironman. I'm going gung ho and started looking at the, you know, the hours a week and going, yeah, how am I going to do this? I also travel, you know, you know, I traveled a lot at that time and um, over weekends, too, which is when you do the bulk of your you know training. Right. I mean, we work jobs, so we yeah. train um, and and barriers and support and when i decide not to do that um you know one of the discussions was well i, I still want to run a marathon i have goals but was working that out with my partner and going okay are you on board with me doing this because you know this is what it means and luckily she had trained for a marathon and she i, I had been running at the time so it wasn't like this was something out of the blue that i hadn't done in 15 years and all of a sudden right. started doing this it, it was it was part of who you know that was part of who she married uh, in that situation. But, you know, I do talk to my clients about the support system. And so what's your approach in in that and looking at it's not just that athlete, but you really oftentimes they do bring people with them into into their training life? Yeah, I mean, I definitely ask uh, my clients when I'm dealing with them about, uh, you know, where where is that support system system coming from? You know, do you have people that that you're going to train with, uh, you know, when you're coaching younger athletes, for instance, um, my husband works with a lot of juniors. And one of the problems, you know, with their support system is even if mom and dad are on board, if mom and dad don't ride, are they doing all of their training inside because they're not allowed to ride by themselves outside? Yeah. Um, you know, that that becomes a challenge in laying out training for those individuals just because of the sheer boredom of having to ride inside. So what sort of other support system do they have that's going to help them in that case? 
with with their training because that really matters as far, as far as how you lay it out. And then, um, you know, of course, the, the issue, issues that you brought up, my, my Ironman athlete example, that was actually one of his biggest problems was that his support system at home uh, did not appreciate the time that it was going to take him to, to train and the time that that was going to take away from home life. And so that was one of his biggest challenges. And um, I think, honestly, the reason that he finally did finish his, uh, his Ironman was that there was also a divorce that happened in there. And so he suddenly had more time to train. <laughs> um, but that, well, was, that was good, not just for the Ironman but for other reasons as well, but that's, that's a whole different program. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because yeah, I wrote down his biggest challenges. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wrote a note here as you were talking about, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, he'd done these and then, you know, he put on 50 pounds oh. and got married and all this stuff. And the note I made here was, so the moral is people shouldn't get married. <laughs> so if, if they want to train properly, um, not true. I'm kidding. Golly bum. Um, but it does, I mean, one, it helps, I think. Certainly, you have to have the other people in your life at least not standing in your way of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, being being supportive is great because there is going to be some slack that has to be picked up by somebody. And, you know, the one thing I, I, I've told all my clients, after they finish a marathon, whoever it is in their life, you take them out to a really nice dinner or whatever it is that will, you know, you know, get that person going, you know, read the five love languages and, uh, you know, figure out which one they are and, and do something for them in that. And um, it, because they've sacrificed right along there. And I love it when I hear pro athletes talk about thanking their family for stuff oh, because, yeah. yeah, it's just amazing um, in doing that. Yeah. It's something else I was going to tag along with that too. But oh, I, I think it, it it's not a prerequisite, but I think it helps if that spouse has has also we'll limit this to athletics here, but has also been athletic in some way and understands that, um, you know, understands the drive to why do you want to do this? You know, why do you want to race your bike? It's crappy weather outside. Why do you want to go for a run when it's crappy weather? Or the fact that uh, I, the biggest one when I trained for the level 100 mountain bike race was, you know, I would get up early on a Saturday morning usually and go for a five or six hour ride. And, but that also meant I was trashed the rest of the day too. Yeah. And, you know, come back, eat, take a nap. And then the biggest thing I wanted to do was go to a movie because I didn't have to be up moving around. And, um, you know, my, you know, the, the, the person in my life at that time was very supportive of that. She got it. She had been around athletics all her life. And now she, I think she thought Leadville was a little crazy, but she kind of understood, you know, the, the desire to do that. So, uh, so yeah, getting those people on board is, is really helpful for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think, you know, we hit on a lot of stuff and actually one of the things I'm going to go off, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you for a loop here. Uh-oh. Um, talk a little bit about some of the mental skills training that you offer. Um, a lot of the, the mental skills training, um, that, that I offer and things that I'm doing when I'm working with client, clients. Um, like I said, my husband, a lot of his clientele base uh, is juniors. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing is actually working with juniors and helping them um, figure out how to navigate 
the pressures that that they're feeling uh, to perform as as young athletes, because a lot of them are, are high level athletes and they put so much pressure on themselves and they feel pressure from um, from teams. And some of them are really feeling it from parents as well. And so it's really just a lot of um, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is, is really helping younger athletes navigate dealing with with those pressures. You know, how is it that they can um, and it, it kind of goes back to to our goal setting and how is it that they can learn how to be proud of accomplishing um, those process and performance goals. And they can uh, they can be all right with that instead of feeling all those pressures for those those outcome based goals. Um, so that's, uh, that's really in the, in the recent past, that's, that's kind of the work that, that I've been doing most of, uh, a lot of young athletes. I had a, a young woman I was working with for a while who, um, she was a cyclist. She loved, loved racing her bike, but dad also had been a bike racer and was living very much vicariously through his daughter. And so, you know, it would be the teary phone calls after a race because dad didn't understand why she didn't win or why she didn't race as well as he thought she should have. And so, you know, just the pressures that this, this young woman who was, I think, 16 at the time um, was feeling, it was just, um, it, it's, it's hard because at that age, you know, they're dealing with puberty and trying to figure out how to grow up and be an adult and all these other things. And then on top of it, their expectations that are being placed on them, whether it's from, from them or from someone else, are adult-level expectations. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of the work that, that I, I'm doing and have done is really helping, helping kids navigate those types of things, especially the, the more elite junior and, and under 23 athletes that, I, that I've been working with. And we, we see some successes and we see some struggles. Uh, you know, that unfortunately, that particular um, athlete that I was just talking about is uh, currently taking a break from racing bikes. So I hope that she finds her way back to it because she really did love it. But um, she somewhere along the way kind of lost the, the passion for it because of all the pressures that she was feeling. Um, and, you know, but I've, I've had other athletes who have done wonderfully. We, you know, we've really worked through how they can focus on the, themselves and their, their own accomplishments and, and not put so much of that external pressure on themselves and have gone on to excel and do, do really, really well with things. And it's, it's great when you can see an athlete go from this place where they're, you know, almost petrified with with that pressure on the starting line and and um, almost dreading going to races because they're they're so afraid of what's going to happen if they don't perform the way that they feel like um, they should to this place where they're super excited to race again because they they love it and they know that um, that they're you know they've already accomplished so much and they can be proud of themselves so that that's kind of the um, the work that I've been doing as of late with athletes. Yeah. And, and Mark does work with some very high level juniors yeah. who've, who've gone to pretty high levels in the sport. Um, there's a term for what you were talking about, the adults in the sport. This, this is a term that I'm trying to get out there in the mainstream. Okay. So okay. you help me with this one. All right. And, and our friend Kristen Diefenbach is kind of on board with this too, but she, she's slowly coming around to liking the word, although she's used it too, is, it's the adultification of youth sports. I love it. I, well, I, I do too because 
it, it so carries true. a yeah. It carries a connotation with it as well of you know, it kind of rhymes with a, another word that ends in vacation. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways, we adults are doing that to our youth sports. Oh, so. I, com- I completely agree. And that's a whole other long conversation that we can have about youth sports. I think you and I would would, would have hours and hours to talk about that. But yes, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that we, um, we're seeing so many challenges. And you know, like I said, those are the those are the athletes that I've been working with. Is is the athletes trying to figure out how to navigate that instead of just, um, you know, letting them be kids and enjoying their sport? There's just so much pressure that they're feeling, whether it's imagined from, you know, themselves because of the the culture that that they're surrounded by, or whether it's the from their parents or you know wherever they're feeling it from. But yes, I think I think it is definitely. Um, I think youth sport is definitely being adultified. There you go. There's a word for you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, and, and, and I, I have a hypothesis that a lot of kids choose the sport they choose mainly become because mom and dad have no clue about the sport. And and this came up that the, the – um, the, the increase in lacrosse playing is what first got me thinking about this because where did this sport come from? I don't, okay. I know where it came from, but <laughs> all of a sudden it's, it's the sport that kids are playing yeah. in a lot of the country. I mean, it's always had this mid Atlantic, maybe up into New York, little, little sliver where it was very popular. Um, but it's a huge sport and, and Denver is just up the road from me here in Colorado Springs and um, in Colorado Springs, it's kind of, a big sport, but not like it is in Denver. And, you know, it's, none of these people's parents played lacrosse. There were there were some coaches I met who had not played until kind of they were adults and just fell into it somehow. And I have made the argument that I think it's because mom and dad cannot really critique me because they don't understand the game. And I think there's an appeal to that for for at least some kids, and that it's it's something. It's also something I think that's theirs and theirs alone. Dad didn't play lacrosse in college, although and there may be some of that. But um, for the most part, the kids I ran into and the the parents I ran into, you know, it's like, well, we didn't want to play in football, but they tended to like to hit things, and we thought lacrosse was a good mix between the two. At least on the male side, you get to you get to check, mm-hmm. um, and so and it's like okay. Um, all right, so um, make, get one of your graduate students to look into that for me as a. I say, that's a really thesis. interesting. Um, that's very interesting. I, maybe I will get one of my students to look into that. We're looking for well, some. I mean, we're looking look, for some new uh, projects right now for students. That, that I, sounds like a good one. I, I like it. it. <laughs> well, well, you know, the other one. I mean, your, I mean, your world, somewhat my world too, I guess. Uh, of bike racing, I think kind of falls in that category too. Of you know, I, I, I'm curious about how many. You know, how many juniors, how many did their parents, you know, race bikes or were they like most parents who stopped riding a bike when they were 16, when they got driver's license? And then maybe they picked it up recreationally later or got into it some way or how many of those kids just kind of maybe stumbled upon it for, you know, however, sometimes you find sports, right? I mean, it's just sometimes a weird thing. I. The story from uh, the Olympics this year about the the fencer, the woman whose name escapes me. I don't follow fencing that closely. Whose mom was looking for something, a sport for her to do, where she could wear her um, 
and I, I never know if this is exactly the right term for her, but her hijab, she's Muslim. And so she has dressing you know, restrictions. Well, they're driving by a, like a fencing school or a fencing club one day, and the mom says, hey, we should try that. You know, now she's an Olympian. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a stupid luck, you know. Yeah. And, you know, she was quite good at it. So anyway, all right. This is uh, – these often go on tangents and stuff, and, and with this, but I do want to. I want do want to plug a previous one I did, and then we're going to wrap this up in a second here. As um, Kristen Diefenbach was on the podcast uh, from that uh, that dropped on November the thirteenth, and we discussed a lot of that youth sport and the adult influences and things like that. So if you're interested in that topic, please go back and pick up that episode. Um, think it is episode four, but I'm not 100% sure, but uh, with, with Dr. Diefenbach. All right. Um, any other comments you want to make about goal setting? Um, I guess didn't hit on? Um, I, I don't know if there's anything necessarily that we didn't hit on, um, but I guess just uh, I, I just like to you know kind of stress, reiterate again, just how important it is to really focus on the the big picture of goal setting, Uh, you know, focus on things other than those outcome goals, Uh, you know, really try to figure out what that, what those performance and process goals are along the way. Um, It's in in every situation, working with people who are trying to accomplish those, um, those, those big long-term goals, it just, it it makes everything so much more effective and people um, end up being so much more successful. Uh, you know, I've worked with, uh, when I was in Greensboro, I worked with a program where we were teaching physical activity to individuals post-bariatric surgery. And we did so much with goal setting with these people who'd never been physically active before, who had hundreds of pounds of weight to lose, and were just trying to figure out how to navigate it all and get into shape. And, you know, those individuals could have gotten discouraged so easily. But, um, you know, when sitting down and setting goals with them, we saw huge success. You know, the same kind of success we see when we do it with athletes. So it were, it really, it, it works. It works in, um, in any situation. And I just, I guess I just can't stress that enough. Yeah. Well, and it works in the business world and everywhere else, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, with definitely. It, it is, it is universal. It is definitely not limited to sport. Well, I, there's a leadership book that I have that actually used in a class I teach and in it, um, there's a the term was BHAG, B H A G, and instead, and the the idea was, you know, don't be afraid to really, you know, go big. And BHAG stands for big, hairy, audacious goals. <laughs> and I really kind of like that. You know, it's like we we've been talking about being realistic here, but yeah. also there is something to having those kind of you know stretch goals and other terms. But yeah, you know, so you've never run a marathon before, and for some reason you you got this crazy urge to do it, and then you heard about this marathon in boston and you know yeah set that BHAG, but like you said it may be a three four or five year project to get you there but that doesn't mean you can't you know you can't do that and the journey is important and um, kind of all the other uh stuff we talk about along those lines so so i, I like BHAG ever I like since that. i read that I, chapter i like that chapter a lot too. that's really yeah. fun yeah all right. Well, you gave me smarter. I'll give you B hack. Okay. Perfect. And, and adultification. Adultification. So, I'm definitely going to use that. Please do. Please do. Um, I'm going to get online here and trademark it real quick here yeah, so that I get, to. you know, I get big money for it. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to wrap up with you. And um, 
my closing questions that I'm trying to become the staple of the show here. Um, five people that you'd like to have dinner with. This can be living, dead, or a fictional character even. Okay, well. And you can include Mark in this if you want to. You know, I. Yeah. I thought, you know, yeah. I. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he come along. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, I. I, I I often ponder this question. I've been given this question before. And it's like, okay, you know, who are the, the great people of history or even in, in my times that I would love to sit down and, and, and have dinner with? And, I, you know, I'd love to. There's, there's, you know, numerous people that I could add to that list. But honestly, I think in the big picture of my life and the older I get, the, the more that this rings true is, you know, family is is so important and I would love to sit down with my grandfather, my great grandfather, both of whom are deceased and my two young nieces who neither of them, my, my grandfather did get to meet the oldest niece when she was a baby, but I would love to sit down and just have, have that conversation now that those two girls are old enough to really um, appreciate conversation because they're just such neat people. And my grandfather and my great grandfather were such neat people that I would just love to see. Um, I would love to have dinner and have those interactions. Let me tell you, all right. I've asked people, I, I, you know, we only done a few of these podcasts and mm-hmm. um, so far that's the best answer I've gotten. No, no, no disrespect to the other people that were list on list who are great people, but that may be the best answer I've heard yet. Wow. That's going to be a tough one to top. Wow. Yeah. God, yeah. Me. Well, well, I mean, you know, our friend Barney King was yeah. on, you know, yeah. before and, you know, a couple of his dinner guests were, you know, were John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Okay. And I thought, well, that'd be a hoot, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, and I, I think he had Robin Williams in there too. I think he may have included Robin Williams and, but I think Barney just want, wanted to get Robin Williams bike collection. So oh, I yeah. think there's yeah. an ulterior motive to that too, yeah. um, with that. But, um, yeah, along those lines, my, my kids are getting, kind of getting to know their great grandparents who uh, on one set are still alive. And, um, mm-hmm. and luckily they've got to know them a little bit before their health and kind of mental capacity started to deteriorate and things like that. So I, I'm hoping they remember that aspect to them because um, they don't really know that from their grandmother, my mother uh, part of it. So um, now God, you really got me thinking. Cause, I, Cause when I make this list, I always think big Yeah, and, and yet, you're right. That's a great list. I may have to retire the question because of that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. You, you floored me. Good job. All right. Um, what's the best piece of advice you ever received? Um, there's always another race. Because you can expand that to more than just a race. If you think about what that means, theoretically, we always have another option. And we need to just keep moving right. And so as an athlete, when I first started racing, I don't even remember who said it, but somebody just looked at me and said, you know what? There's always another race. Yeah. Nothing that's going on ever is the end of the world. So, you know, if you put that in perspective, um, it really makes everything um, better. Very good. Very good. Um, and uh, what are you reading right now that is not work-related and not student papers? Um, okay. So interest? it's, I guess I, this is as close to not work related as I can get. It still has, well, to, do, you know, it well, still has to do with sports psychology, but it's not for work. Um, 
it, I was at yeah, a, it's it's yeah. a goofy thing. In our business, it's sort of like my pleasure reading is sometimes things that have to do with training and physiology and stuff. Well, so, yeah I, yeah, I get it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love what I do. So, you know, most of my life revolves somewhere around physical activity and human behavior and, and all of those kinds of things. But I was at a conference recently, and our keynote speaker on one of the days we were there was Diana Nyad, who's the woman oh. who swam from... Um, uh, she from Florida to uh, Cuba, actually from Cuba to Florida, was it? Yeah, it was from Cuba to Florida. Um, at I bet she was really bummed when they found out that you can fly there. <laughs> yeah. She was such an inspirational speaker. If you if you ever get a chance to hear her speak, her story is just amazing, and she's funny. So I mean, she's one of those people that she'll have you laughing and crying and everything all at the same time. It was. Um, but I bought her, her book um, called Finding a Way, talking about okay. how her, her first attempt at, at doing that swim was, um, was when she was in her 20s. And she didn't right. actually accomplish it until she was, I think, 62 when she, when she actually yeah. did it. So um, it's just, it's, her story is just an amazing story. It's very inspirational. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of the you know, psychology behind it. And, uh, you know, so... So that's that's the book that I've just started reading. I, I bought it at the conference. And so fantastic. All right. Well, good read. All right then. All right. Well, Kim, Dr. Vazeski, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you sharing your insights on goal setting. And um what to what to find a good excuse to get you back on here again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, you too.